Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Bukowski, as always, bringing you the greatest guests on the planet to help you live your greatest life in the body you love. Thanks for being here, ladies and gents. Today's guest is an absolutely mind-blowing author of the book, Essentialism. He recently released another best-selling book called Effortless. Greg McEwen joins me today to talk about leadership, ultimately getting through the noise, deciding what is essential and how to make your life effortless. Two separate books that we kind of blend into one conversation. I absolutely love this conversation with Greg. He's literally become a world-recognized authority on the concept of leadership and also ultimately deciding what in your life is the most important thing to do and then doing it. As I've said many times in the past, people who succeed in life simply know what to prioritize and they prioritize it. Life isn't hard. It's quite simple if you know what to do and you simply execute on it. And that's the premise of our conversations today and ultimately how to sift through the noise, get through the unconscious things that are happening in your mind that are blocking you from stepping into your greatness. I hope you love this conversation with Greg McEwen. Today's podcast is brought to you by our great friends at Bioptimizers have done it again. They're coming at you with blood sugar breakthrough. You guys have heard me talk about this one time in the past. And it's an absolutely fantastic product for anyone looking to stabilize blood sugar, stabilize mood, stabilize energy, and likely even drop some body fat. If you don't already know, dysregulated blood sugar is one of the biggest culprits for driving up inflammation and destroying your daily energy and focus. If you're someone who lacks energy, maybe you lack focus, maybe sometimes you get a little brain fog. Oftentimes it is to do with insulin sensitivity and these fluctuating blood sugar levels. So one of the greatest ways that you can combat that is simply taking a couple of these servings of blood sugar breakthrough every day. Bioptimizers is always on the cutting edge of bringing out the best new products. I've been very excited to recently receive my package of blood sugar breakthrough, and I've actually been implementing it. My intention is to run it for 30 days through September. I'd love to have you guys join me. I'm actually going to be running a very specific diet through September where my intention is actually to have no more than 20 grams of net carbohydrates throughout the day. So uh, if you guys want to join me, I'm actually going to be talking about this and actually walking through 30 days of workouts, 30 days of plan, 30 days of diet plan in my Facebook group, the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. I'd love to have you join me there and also pick up the blood sugar breakthrough product from bioptimizers.com. You guys can check out their product at bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash muscle. Use the code muscle10 to get hooked up. Bloodsugarbreakthrough.health is the website. And use the code muscle10 to get hooked up with 10% off that and their entire roster of amazing products. If you're not already taking the mag breakthrough, you're missing out. If you're not already taking the digestive enzymes, masszymes, I highly suggest you do it. Their products are absolutely phenomenal as well as their entire roster of incredible products. Head over to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash muscle to get hooked up with 10% off. You can also find all of these uh, codes and so much more in the show notes at muscleintelligence.com slash podcast. Thank you, ladies and gents. Enjoy the podcast with the incredible author of Essentialism and Effortless, Mr. Greg McEwen. It's probably better to be in California than the UK. I'm going to speculate. I'm sure you have family back there. How is it there? Um, yeah, it's been, they've definitely been on even heavier lockdown than here. Yeah. Um, and the weather was terrible. So at least you got nice weather in California. <laughs> I, and, and I should now stop complaining because if you have to be somewhere for a pandemic, 
uh, yeah, we we could choose worse places. Totally. I, I, I was in Tampa, and I think Tampa might be the best place in the entire pl- world where for COVID. Like there was literally very few restrictions. Uh, I felt very blessed. It's nice. Well, that's what it is. It's yeah. blessed. And we we did the key is. Go ahead. No, go on. Oh, good. I hear the key is. I was just talking with uh, Kim Scott um, on my podcast, mm-hmm. uh, the What's Essential podcast, yep. and she she said. You know, she loves two by two. She says, "You know, I love a two by two. Uh, both of her books are based on based on simple two by twos." And he, she said, "This is the two by two we all need right now: is on one axis uh, love and hate, and on the other axis um, before the pandemic and during the pandemic." So that what we need to do right now as we're transitioning is. Which things did we love before? Which things have we loved during? And which things have we hated before and during? So that we can start to design a routine, a lifestyle that takes, if we can, the best of before and the best of during uh, and eliminates these other things. Because one of the things that's, I think, certain is that as a, as a general rule, people do not want to go back to how things were before. Uh, there's a YouGov poll for the UK that finds only 8% of people want to go back to things as they were before. Interesting. Uh, and I just did a, I mean, it's not non-scientific poll, but it's a data point uh, on LinkedIn, a, a poll, and had, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 people voting on it. And 75% of people said they didn't want to go back to things as they were before. Hmm. That's really interesting. So, so even, the, no, go ahead. The thing that I feel like that uh, necessitates is intentionality, doesn't it? Like, or allows the opportunity for intentionality. And I think I'd be curious about your opinion or your your thought on what percentage of people actually live with some semblance of intentionality. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that I think that trying to get out of reactive decision making and into designing, right? To live by design, not by default. Right. Uh, is, is different. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the percentage is. I, I, I think all of us live reactively and designfully at different times. I think that majority of our time is spent, the majority of people, the majority of the time spend their times in a reactive state. A sort of survival. Okay, what do I need to do to just get through the next thing? Yep. Um, and and so I mean I think oh, there was a phrase I just came across recently about like strategically opportunistic, something like that. And I thought that was a if I'm getting the phrase right, I like that idea that I mean we do have to live life in small increments because we only have now. You know, like we don't have the past and the future is just conceptual. Like all we have is this now. In fact, neurologists and and, and neuroscientists and psychologists have worked on this question. And so they've taken it from the philosophical where now it's just hard to measure thing or even impossible to measure. And they estimate that it's between two and three seconds long (laughs) now. And so really whatever ideas you have, whatever things you want to do in the future and so on, you still have to make choices in this tiny incremental way. Right. So the question is, is how to do that in a way that 
that reinforces your selected values uh, rather than just, oh, I don't even know what my values are in this situation, but I'll just get through it. I'll stumble through it. Uh, and, and trying to take ownership of that little, just this next little space. I think that's quite optimistic, that like quite a, a hopeful idea that life is just in this tiny increment. Right. It feels overwhelming at times, but in the end, it's just this next little thing. What are you going to do next? I think that's a brilliant segue into what we're going to talk about today. And, and I'd love to hear your, you said, um, well, you brought up the term values and selected values was the term you chose. And I'm curious how you frame that in your mind and, and what your belief is around are people's values intentionally selected or is it something that people default to that they're not even aware of? And so how is that then guiding the the thought process behind what becomes essential in your life. Cause so, you know, your, your first book essentialism was, was a, you know, worldwide success and, and called one of the best leadership books in, in ever to, to read in anyone's life. And that's amazing. And I'm curious how you view, I mean, obviously walking us down the path to how we determine what is essential, how much do, do values play into that? And, and is our values intentionally selected or is it something that just runs in the background in the unconscious? I mean, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, if, you know, your values, you have to choose your values or they'll be chosen for you. Mm. Um, and, and they're not, I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a deep question because it's not even just whether I have react, reactively absorbed them or chosen them myself it's also intergenerational um, for sure and and yet we often live life as if really all everything started when we were born like birth or death thinking and and so when we when we when we do that we we think that every, everything in our life is um, has been defined you know, just by our choices. Uh, and, and we have this, well, I'll share an experience. I was once uh, standing in a store, uh, Halloween time, costume store, and I'm dressed, for, I'm staring at myself, dressed from head to foot in a, a Stormtrooper costume, an expensive one, like movie quality suit. And I'm like, how did I get here? How is it that in this moment, I'm about to buy this. That's my default position is just, okay, that's why I'm there to do it. I'm just trying on before buying it. And I'm like, not one part of me actually wants this. So how, how did I get here? And I realized that it had all started 30 years before when Return of the Jedi came out. There's all this hype around the movie. And I love the movie along with my family. And one of my older brothers said, wouldn't it be great if, wouldn't it be so cool, he said, if we could just get like a movie quality suit. And I'm like 10 years old or thereabouts and he just grabbed me. Oh, that would be cool. And he thinks it's cool. And, and mimetic device being what it is, right? That mimetic devices are that we tend to want what we think other people want. Uh, and, and so, and so even the things that we want are often a function of other people's desires or even our perception of what other people want, as it was with me, with my brother. And so here we are 30 years later, that has sat with me as this unconscious, oh, you, that's what you want. That's what you, <laughs> and actually I don't want it. 
but something was on a autopilot. So that's become a short, um, you know, little question that my wife, especially Anna, will ask me if I'm <laughs> if I'm running down some path. So you're like, yeah, is this a stormtrooper? Ah, oh, I like that. Yeah, and I, and I, I like that question too because you can extend it beyond just you know goals that have outlived their usefulness. And as in, you know, literally the stormtrooper costume. And there are all sorts of goals that, that we sort of on autopilot on, and we just don't, they're not essential to us anymore. We can let go of them. But it's more than just goals. It can be assumptions, mindsets, everything. Yeah, social constructs, right? Like to, to include who you should become or who, who you might be when you're successful. And those things are planted in your brain from the time you're watching, I don't know, Bugs Bunny and and uh, whatever when you're a child, right? You're watching cartoons when you're a child or you're watching sitcoms. Like those ideals are planted in your brain and, and they definitely manifest later in life. That's a brilliant um, awareness you had. Uh, and and there's other things too that, that clutter up our minds in addition to the things we talked about, they just make it harder to be present and to enjoy this, this now, this incremental now that we're talking about, to utilize it in its fullest sense. Um, I'm thinking here of things like holding grudges uh, and, and being angry. Um, I was talking to Tim Ferriss recently and asked him, I said, okay, how much of your mental capacity, your, you know, your the space in your mind have, has been used up with, with grudges and anger. And he said, well, between about 60 and 70%. Oh, wow. And he was talking about a particular period of his life, maybe age 15 to 30. Yeah. And saying in those years, 60 to 70%. Think of that. Uh, and so that's part of the stormtroopers in our minds. That's all, that's all this just loading up and building up and just cluttering and making it so much harder to make any progress on the things that are actually essential. And so I, I sort of summarize what we're talking about so far um, as, as the difference between being in like a state of suffering, you know, where you're stressed and strained and unhelpfully complex and just burdened versus an effortless state where really the only difference is not some huge, it's not some huge journey and effort to get there. You just, as you remove the clutter, the effortless state is there. It's always there. We just have to remove the things that are getting in the way. And once you get into the effortless state, then you're able to be at ease, focus on what's essential in the in this moment, and therefore be able to make progress and moving. Yeah. My brain goes to like an inventory of your conscious states and your conscious um, thoughts, right? Like taking inventory of what's occupying the greatest percentage of your time and making that removing those things that are ultimately causing suffering, to use your term, and uh, allow you to actually you know step into those things that are most useful. So something like intentional curation of real estate in your mind. I think so. And, and I mean, for example, so here with this podcast, obviously there's, it's not, it's not the only focus I know, um, but just your, just physical workout and health. And, and you think about, well, there's sort of 
all of the stuff that keeps people from doing it. And then there's the work itself. And what my estimation is with this is that, is that the harder part is getting to it in the first place. 100%. So the, um, the emotional burdens, the mental burdens, and the, all that stuff of suffering that we're talking about, that state, that's actually the challenge. The, the work itself, once you're there, especially if you're, if you're doing workouts right, if you're doing it you know, in a way that isn't, isn't strained and forcing it, then, then that can actually be quite enjoyable. And of course, the rewards are enjoyable. So often it's really the state that keeps us from it. And all these, these burns, oh, I, you know, I have to do it perfectly if I go. And if I go, I'm going to do it for hours and I'm so far behind and I'm embarrassed about how I look. And, and I, you know, and so-and-so used to look a certain way and I feel embarrassed by that. And I've got beliefs that my body is not really, I won't respond to the, it, it, all that stuff keeps you from making progress. And that's why it's the primary, the first focus of, in the new book on effortless is, is get to effortless state. Because once you can get to effortless state, you can start moving to effortless action and effortless results. It's the state that holds us back, that keeps us from making progress on what really matters to us. Right. And if you could walk us through what your brain uh, describes as the, the, the sequence of events that needs to lead up to us getting this to this effortless state, I think every single human being in this world would be eternally grateful. <laughs> I don't think we have to overcomplicate it. Um, I mean, let, let me give you one immediate trick. Uh, that I think is, I mean, again, come back to this idea that like the now is this tiny thing. So you don't have to take on, um, you know, death and all his friends. You don't have to take on everything that you possibly, you just say, okay, how can I get into an effortless state in this moment? How can I, how can I start working on that? And the fastest single way that I know how to do this uh, is, is, to, is this. After I complain, I will say something I am thankful for. Like we, we tend to live, we like complain about everything. Once I started that little rule, uh, I realized I complained way more than I realized. Yep. Uh, and, and I used to think of myself as being positive and optimistic and, and happy, but I was amazed at how often I was just defaulting into this complaining state. So even by just saying, after I complain, I will say something I'm thankful for, that's an interrupt. And you can't be both thankful and suffer at the same time. You can't be right. both thankful and fearful and angry and, 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 and full of grudges. It's just states just don't work that way. Right. As soon as you interrupt it with something you're thankful for, it, 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 you, okay, you're in that state. Yeah. And the, the nature of, of the nature of, positive state is that it, it tends to beget itself. So this is um, something called the broaden and build theory by Barbara Fredrickson that shows that the positive state produces, uh, that state produces options for you. Positive emotion is causative. It's a catalytic thing. So you start to you start to see options where you didn't see them before. You've seen possibilities. Well, that affects your relationships because now you can be more creative with other people around you as well. And, and, and that then helps build a stronger network and support group that can help you. And so there's this upward spiral 
that follows. And so, and so that's just one concrete thing. You can do it immediately. Uh, we, I, I, we introduced it into our family culture. Uh, I, I do it with my kids every day. Well, that's what it is. Yep. And, and so, so I was saying it to my son once after he was complaining. And uh, I said, okay, give me something you're thankful for. I think we were doing even three thank yous. I think it was like, okay, give me three things you're thankful for. Funny, same as me. <laughs> yep. And he's like, I'm so thankful uh, my dad is playing this game or I have to say something thankful after I complain about something. And uh, we all laughed. Right. And, and that's the power of this. Gratitude is so strong. You don't even have to be pure about it. You don't have to like, you know, he's being, he's being sarcastic about it. It doesn't matter. It works still. And he still had other things that he had to say thank you after that. And it just changed the dynamic. And so, and so if I could summarize it as a principle, I would say if you focus on what you lack, you're going to lose what you have. And if you focus on what you have, then you're going to gain what you lack. And so that focus of control, if you focus on what you have, it will expand, it will grow. And immediately. And I don't know even that you can overdo the principle. I certainly haven't come close to it yet. I haven't found myself getting to the edge of it and going, okay, well, that's, that's as far as you can go. Uh, you just, you just, the more you have, the more things you say you're thankful for, the more those things grow, the more positive comes in. And, and I think this is literally uh, a, something that you can utilize uh, to advance your career, to advance your success, to advance your relationships, to advance every area of your life. I don't think you can overdo it. And, uh, and most of us aren't anywhere close to overdoing it, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, but that's that's one thing you can immediately do, uh, and and I think it works in. I think it works when somebody starts to feel discouraged. Oh, I'm working out, I need to work out. What do they normally do? They beat themselves up. Oh, you say you never work out. You never do this. You're not good enough for this. And, and look at that person over there. They do it all the time, and I don't do it. I don't look like a rock yet. So that's a, that's a problem. And you know, and, and you can do all of this stuff, and it doesn't. Does that ever produce? momentum does it produce better results or does it exactly take you down on the downward spiral uh and so i i think that you can you can immediately do this to to, to regain positive state maybe just one more way of thinking about this is um when i had benjamin hardy on the what's essential podcast uh he gave me a great question uh and it's this are you in the gain or are you in the gap and what he means by it is if you're in the gap, you're looking at what you haven't achieved yet, what you haven't accomplished, what you haven't done, what other people have achieved, some ideal in your mind, all those things. And so you're looking at what, you know, that's the gap between where you are and what you'd like to achieve. And then on the other side, there's the gain, which is how far have I come, what has been accomplished, what has already gone right, who have I, how have I progressed so far in my life? And he just makes this point that you could probably be successful in either, in either side, in either state, now using the words from our conversation. Uh, he said, but you won't be happy. <laughs> if you are in the gap, you will not be happy. If you're in the gain, you will be happy. Yep. 
And so I, I love that also in this in this contrast. Okay, so you're in the gap, you're in the game. One of my great friends actually uses the exact same context. He says, instead of focusing on the distance between where you are now, where you want to be, focus on the, on the distance from where you began to where you are now. And that simple context, like some people are born into challenging lives and they've come so far. And even if they're not born to a challenging life, if you look back objectively and say, this is how much I've done in my life, it's a very uh, rewarding, accomplished place to exist. The dopamine system gets fired up and your body starts looking for, for ultimate reward and then pursuing further things. I think that's a brilliant perspective. Um, so speaking of your um, your gratitude practice, there's one thing that a previous guest of the show brought up, and I thought it's relevant. So if I have a if I if I'm saying something negative about anything, he suggests that it means I have a negative charge. A great way to think of it is I have a negative charge around that topic in my brain. And he says specific to that thing, can you list three to five things? that are positive about it or why this could become a positive thing for you. So what you're doing is you're balancing out the charge. So instead of having negative charge or bringing negative emotions, you can now become grateful for it. And uh, now it's no longer having that charge in your brain. It seems to allow your brain to just kind of live out a little more leveled, which ultimately leads us into this effortless, effortless mindset. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think a person who can turn a negative into a positive can never be defeated. Um, and that's an idea that has just literally changed the direction and the trajectory of my whole life. Uh, and and uh, you can even push this to one degree further where you say, um, there's a scripture that says this, it says, thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. And whether somebody's you know, perspective of faith or it, it is, the idea of in all things is interesting because we tend to think, and I think I used to think, well, thankfulness, gratitude uh, is for, you know, that's for the good things. Uh, but what if it's not? What if it's supposed to be just in all things? And I started, I, I have a, I do have a gratitude journal and I started about 10 years ago. I don't think I've missed a day in 10 years. And, and for a long time, I was just putting the things that, you know, here are the good things that happened today, here are the positive things. But then slowly I realized, well, but what about the things that aren't, aren't what you wanted today? You're not grateful for those? Are those inherently something to sort of just, okay, well, well, can you? Can you be thankful for those? And so sometimes I write now, you know, okay, I'm thankful that this thing didn't work out the way I was hoping it would. And I don't know why I am yet, even as I'm writing it. It's almost like a little act of faith. You go, okay, well, I'm thankful for it for some reason. Let's see. And as I'm writing it, it's often that something will come to me even in that moment. And I go, oh, yeah, but that is a good lesson that came from that. Yeah. You know, that, that, and you probably couldn't have learned that lesson any other way. Um, it happened to me last 24 hours where um, but basically I so basically somebody invoiced me for a far higher amount than I was expecting and and at first I'm like oh that's that's some sticker shock there and then I realized well normally I do that work myself and I would not normally allow the amount of time that they've taken to do it and maybe I'm I'm selling myself short maybe I need to create more space for doing that work when I do it. I'm trying to do it in a few hours, but really that's one of the reasons it's hard for me to get to it, why I'm even outsourcing it. And, and that was quite a valuable lesson. Um, and, and so that, that alone was, was, was probably was worth this additional cost. 
And, and so if you're thankful in all things, it's like, yeah, you can't be defeated. Bad thing happens. You're like, wow, thank goodness. You know, feel humbled by that. That's, that's so, that's so useful. Oh, I've got, a, I've got an opportunity to learn something I didn't know before. Let's, let's dig into it. Uh, I can see a weakness that I could, could get a chance to now develop. And I think it's supposed to be that level. I think it can be an advantage in all those ways. Whereas I used to think of this as a very, as maybe a soft or weak principle. I now see it as the most tenacious, most resilient principle of, of, of any I know. Yep. I completely agree. And that's something that uh, I have been speaking of for such a long time is, is the person who is truly powerful can turn an obstacle and into an opportunity in the, in an instant, right? In the instant it's happening. That to me is the most empowered position to come at life is like anything that comes in front of you that seems like an obstacle or a challenge. If you can immediately see the opportunity for progress, it's telling you, Hey, maybe I'm not adequate at this yet. Maybe I don't have the emotional resilience to cope with this yet, but this is my opportunity to step into it and, and grow. Uh, if you can do that instantaneously, I think you become a, as you say, like just an empowered, almost dangerous person, right? They can't, they can't be defeated. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and another way of sort of a one-liner way of thinking about it is, is, is life happening to me or for me? Mm. And once you get to the idea, I mean, I, I, you know, my worldview includes that life is a mission and that we came with a purpose and that, and that, you know, that, there's a loving heavenly father who is watching over us and is aware of us. And so when the hard thing happens, C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, he said, you have to decide at some point, obviously he used to not, he used to be an atheist who became a Christian. And, and so there's very interesting to watch his writing and development, but he says, eventually you have to decide whether, whether, whether God is benevolent or whether he's a vivisectionist, <laughs> like, does he enjoy our pain? So then he's doing these things that, hurt us or is there such benevolence that he goes no this is the path this is the way and i'm going to help you find a way through this that just maximizes you and transforms you and and helps you to become more than you could ever have done without me and without the, the this experience and once you start to lean into that you become less afraid of the future less afraid of the challenges that are inevitably going to come that we don't even know what they are because you say oh they're for me they're for my children. They're for my family. They're for my business. They're for my future. You know, it's a, it's a different orientation. It's almost a bring it on type sensation because you say this is this is the path. This is the way, uh, and and you don't you don't battle it and constantly just try to avoid uh, you know the the, the the things that would otherwise normally cause you fear. How does someone develop the self belief and maybe self respect? to um, believe that they can step into those obstacles, right? So they're creating the awareness that, hey, this is an opportunity. This obstacle that, that stands in front of me is, is certainly an opportunity for me to grow. But I'm, I'm feeling resistance from, from people that would say, oh, maybe I'm not strong enough to overcome this. Maybe I can't do it. Um, any suggestions there on how to kind of navigate that psychologically? Well, one of the things that comes to mind when you ask that is a, a simple exercise. If you, if you just write down a new goal of any kind, right? Like if, if, if somebody says, um, okay, I, wanna, I wanna go to this university or I want to, or even something much smaller than even that, you say, okay, I want to, I want to read this book, finish this book. And that requires a certain amount of effort to buy it, to sit down, to read it. 
if you write that down, say, okay, I'm going to read this book by the end of this week. The moment you do it, in exactly the instant you do it, something else will pop into your mind. And it's a few things will pop into your mind. And what they'll seem like to a slightly untrained eye is sort of a slightly negative thoughts. Because um, what comes to mind is all the obstacles. Okay, well, you know, do I have time to actually go buy that? Do I want to spend the money on that? Sort of thing that I can spend money on Do I have the time to read it? If it arrives, when would I even do it? All right, there's all these things that pop up. And, and that's exactly the thing, is that those come into existence in exactly the moment that the goal comes into existence. They are part of the same phenomenon. And, and so here's now, we're getting close to the helpful part, which is that those thoughts that come to our mind are our brain's best attempt at explaining the path to completion. That, that is our brain's best guess of how you would get there. Every obstacle that's coming to our mind is really a unit of information that is educating us and trying to teach us, well, this is what needs to be addressed in order to get there. Each one is like a stepping stone for getting where we need to go. So we don't want to run away from those things when they come. That's like, that's the first path of information. And our job is to look at each one and to say, okay, what can I, what can I do to make that to resolve that as easily and effortlessly as possible so I can achieve the goal I'm trying to achieve. And so it's, it, it's I, think, I think that example, at least to me, says, don't worry about whether, don't make it a, don't make it a big character thing. Do I have internal enormous strength necessary to deal with every problem? You know, like that's overwhelming. I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. It, that, that might defeat me before I even begin. But if you just say, can I set a goal? Can I write down the things that are in the way? And can I look at every single thing and just say, okay, how, how would that be? What could I do to as easily as possible address each of those things? What's the that, easiest way to do them? Is that part of your goal setting process to, to maybe write down the goal and then just experience what comes next and, and then try to articulate that? Cause that feels like um, something no, I've never heard anybody speak of, but it feels like it'd be a really useful process to, to write down the goal and just listen to your internal dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was um, I was taught a process similar to what I'm describing um, by Dan Sullivan, and he 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 literally says, "Look, write down the, the intent." Are you, are you in strategic coach? I I ha I was for okay because I know you mentioned Ben and he's in that. Sorry. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't know Ben from that, but um, but but yes, you're, you're right. He is too. And and literally, you write down the list of. You don't just have it mentally, you actually write it down and then you write down the response to each thing. The only thing I would say in addition to that that I think is important is don't just write down what you'll do about it. That question of what, what's the most effortless way to do this thing is really important because I only have as much strength as I have in any given moment. There are things I can do in my life to develop more strength, more power over time. But in this moment, I just have whatever is available now. And so it's a question of how can I take action that gives me the largest return on effort? You know, we have ROI, but this is ROE. What's your return on effort? How can you make sure that you're using your effort in the highest leverage way possible? 
so that you can achieve far more for every unit of effort you put in, which is actually often not what people have because what often people experience is that they, they have diminishing returns on their effort and then eventually even negative returns where, I mean, again, you could go, you go do a workout you want to cause you want to challenge yourself. Um, but there's a point of diminishing returns where every unit of effort you're getting less back. And then there's definitely negative returns where somebody's overdoing it. They're damaging themselves beyond usefulness. Uh, and they would be far better at that point to stop, right? Rather than, oh, so I'm still not getting where I want. Let's even push even harder. So, so a lot of people get caught up into that where it's just an, you just, just my, the only answer to every problem is push, push you know, is, is more effort of the same kinds of things. And what I would advocate for, for people if they want to achieve a much higher level of success in anything they take on, they need to find the, the most effortless way to achieve it so that they can achieve more than they used to on the same amount of effort. So you're going to leverage yourself to take that effort and multiply it so that you can achieve 10 times, 20 times more. Right. So let's talk about that, Craig. Yeah, because I think that's not super clear, right? Like, great, set the goal. And then what if I, if the path, the most effortless effortless pass isn't, uh, isn't obvious? Maybe it's just like, what is that? How do, how, do you have a process or a suggestion on how you would start looking at that? Um, yeah, I mean, let me give you, if somebody's trying to achieve something one time, let me kind of give um, five questions. If, you, if, if you're trying to put effort, you know, take, trying to take action, get a result once. Um, my son wanted to get his Eagle Scout. Um, he'd actually done everything. We did it in like an accelerated path. We did it in two years. He wanted to get it by the time he turned 14. We're, you know, we're, we're like... Coming up to that point, he'd done everything, including the Eagle Project. One thing remained, that's writing up the report on the project. And we, just, we both just started procrastinating. I mean, it's his project, but I'm still sort of part of it with him, trying to support and coach him. And weeks, you know, weeks are going by, still not doing it. Uh, and, and even I think turned into sort of months, month or two now, and I know firsthand, I know of, of someone who was in scouting who literally missed, they did everything but the final report until the day after their 18th birthday, handed it in and they didn't get it, right? They, you know, they, you know they're just sticklers about it. And so even though he's like not even 14 yet, you just could see it, this, these things, if, you, if they slip, then you, you could end up procrastinating for, if it's, if it's been weeks and months, it can be years. And yep. And so there's just this one final thing. So, so here are some of the questions that we asked ourselves. Um, and let me sort of try and go through the five of them. One uh, is what does done look like? Uh, so for us, what done looked like was we have taken this into the scout's office and they have accepted it. Uh, and that's it. That is what done looks like. They have signed off on it. It is done. Um, what steps can I delete in the process? Well, well, this is one of the things that it helped keep us back from making progress is that we had seen some other reports that had been done that were spectacular, uh, you know, done wooden binders, like gloriously done, and then just 100 hours worth of work in this thing. 
And we just, that just was so overwhelming. We were procrastinating. We weren't starting it because it was so much. We said, well, what steps can we delete? You know, what are the minimum number of steps needed? You need a three-page essay, you need a few photographs, you need to, you know, write a sentence about most of them. That's it. That's all we have to do. Okay, what's the, that's question three. What's the first, what's the obvious first step? In the process. Let's not worry about the tenth step. What's the very the first obvious action? And uh, and that was uh, drive together and buy a three ring binder. And that's such a that's such a helpful question because it's just it's like as soon as you know the answer, the, what's the obvious first action? Your whole body relaxes. You like get it like pushes you into an effortless state. You're like oh, the phrase that comes to mind it will just pop. I can do that. I, I can do that next step. That next little now, I know what to do. I go to get in the car, drive to the store. We can do this. Um, the, the fourth question is, you know, what gradual pace can I sustain? Uh, and a lot of a lot of successful people fail to become very successful because they try to overdo in order to overachieve. And so, like, let's say in a workout setting, if somebody says, okay, I'm ready, gonna do this. And they go work out, they wanna work out for two hours, three hours, they're gonna go big. For me, I just took up swimming again, they closed the community pool through COVID. The last time I swam, I swam a hundred lengths. Uh, and so the temptation was as soon as we went back, was for me to immediately do that, right? Let's do a hundred lengths. And and I knew if I do that, I might be able to do it, but I'm definitely going to feel sick at the end of it. I'm going to, it's going to be too much. And then that, that makes the chance of being um, intermittent in my new workout routine. Uh, you know, that, that it's, it's a greater chance that I'm just going to do it once. And then, okay, I got to take a break for a few days. Or maybe not get back to it because I didn't enjoy it very much. So I said, okay, 40 lengths. That's it. That's my upper bound. My lower bound is going, just go to the swimming pool. Uh, you know, dressed in swim, in swim shorts, go to the swimming pool. Uh, so that's, my, that's now my lower bound and upper bound. And the upper bound is the thing that I think is less thought through because people think, well, you know, I just got to give it everything I can. Uh, and the pace is really important. You, you want to find the closest thing to an effortless pace that you can to be consistent. Uh, and, then, and then the fifth question is when we've already totally gone deep on which is just what can i be grateful for so that you just continually come back to that uh, it, it lightens everything that you're doing uh, if somebody's running a marathon well that that's the challenge that it is if you start complaining while you're doing it now it's even harder <laughs> if you're grateful for each part of the process everything's just a little easier so that that helps with all of it so those are five questions i think that people can ask uh, and what we did now just coming full circle uh, back to the the, the, the scout book, uh, you know, the gradual pace for us was uh, was just saying, okay, we're going to work on it every day till it's done over the next two weeks, just a small amount every day, um, nothing overwhelming. Uh, and, and as we were grateful through the process, it just gave us a little burst of energy. Wow, yeah, look at how far we've come. I mean, we've done everything. We've done two years of this. And it seemed, seemed impossible at the beginning, and we've enjoyed it, made all these memories together. And that just helped give a crescendo you know, just enough energy to get us over the line. And he did graduate 
and not graduate. He, uh, he got his, his eagle uh, one week before his 14th birthday. So, you know, it worked out. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations. So one of the things that I want to kind of bridge is, so we talked a lot about your book, Effortless, which is the most recent one and, and how to get this, this resistance of mind uh, kind of out of the way. Do you ever um, integrate the mind body? So you mentioned in there, you, you're, you're going to start to embody this, um, you know, tension, you can start to feel it in your body. And, and that we know there's a, there's a deep connection between, you know, the somatic response and the psychological connection. I'm curious if you, if you've studied that at all, as far as, uh, cueing people physiologically or physically to uh, start to release the, the tension that builds up from the psychological resistance. I had a really interesting conversation recently, um, also on the podcast, um, with Dr. Greg Wells, who... I know well, yeah. Oh, do you? Yep. Uh, so, so, you know, he's, he's, you know, worked as a coach to... Um, to Olympic athletes and and there's a, there's all sorts of places we went in the conversation that was that I thought was fascinating. But one of the things he said is that they they've just learned how the whole no pain no gain. Like I asked him, well, what do you think about that phrase? What does it mean? And he said, I just cringe when I hear that now. Is that what we've learned at elite levels of performance is is how counterproductive that is. It doesn't matter how, how many 1980s motivational speakers talk about it. It still isn't actually the way that, that humans thrive, mind, body, heart, and spirit. So that's just not how it is. So you can't, just because we got into a factory-based system in the Industrial Revolution and started thinking of people as machines and, 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 and teams as factories and so on, just because that mindset became dominant doesn't make it any truer. It's the equivalent of bloodletting. Uh, just because if everyone believes it doesn't make it true, you can still be damaging people even if it's the even if it's the cultural norm. Right, uh, and of course that's exactly what happens. Uh, and so he he cho- chose instead a sort of new mantra, which is "run fast, not hard." And I love that as a mm. as a new mantra. It's not one I'd heard before, and it's like he just he said, "Just imagine someone running hard. What would that look like? What would Hence, you be doing to yeah. your body?" What are we doing to your mind? Run hard versus run fast. And the difference, and and you say, that's what we're going for. And I I loved it. I felt like he was making the case uh, so well for why effortless is so helpful for peak performance. You don't want people to be burned out. Uh, In fact, I've, I've recently had really interesting conversations beyond that with Thomas Dimitrov, um, uh, who, you know, who was recently fired, but he was the general manager of the NFL team, the Falcons, uh, and just talking to him, you know, through the same thing and just about how many people, how many players just get beaten up, absolutely beaten up by this, these kinds of, even if you don't use the phrase, no pain, no gain, you still have that culture of, of relentlessness and that high performance simply means the person who does the longest work. And then that's all it's about, just more and more and more. Uh, and and how, how actually untrue that turns out to be. Yep. Now, yes, you want intense, intense workout. Of course you do. Yep. But you also need deep, uh, deep relaxation, recuperation to right. be able to get the rhythm for sustainable peak performance. Yeah, where I think that 
my mind goes on that, Greg, is quality. So, um, you know, working hard, and it's a beautiful segue to what to your book, is like working um, hard is effortful. Working um, well, quality of movement, just like quality of work, uh, it feels effortless, right? When you see the best athletes in the world doing what they do, it's almost like a state of flow. They get into it and they're just, it just looks effortless. It's like they're floating. And that's ultimately where we strive to. Now, there's certainly a process to get there, right? Some people get there faster, but most people who are uh, exceptional in anything have gone through many, many years of, you know, perfect practice, like, over and over and over. And that's how they get to that effortless place. So do you think the same exists in um, the psychological realm? Is, is it like just a matter of uh, repetition to get your mind out of that effortful, you know, I think of like trudging through three feet of mud, right? It's this effortful, like, gosh, everything just seems harder. But once you really start to then get tie those two books together, right? Effort, or effortless and essentialism. Mm. Once you start to realize like, hey, when I'm, when I'm doing the things that are most essential, and I'm doing them well, consistently, then it becomes effortless. Yes. I mean, I think, first of all, there is a relationship between essentialism and effortless, uh, and, and, that, and that's important. They, they're standalone books. Uh, I've, I've just started having the quite enjoyable experience of people who are reading effortless who have never read essentialism. And so they're coming at it, you know, oh, I, I just had a husband and wife email me, oh, my, my wife is reading Effortless, I'm reading Essentialism, then we're going to switch. I love the idea that somebody can come at it from either angle that's most relevant. The way I think about these is that while they stand, they're, they're separate, stand alone, they're a little bit like um, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's like they made music separately, but together is when the magic happened. Yeah, That's a bit presumptuous of an example, um, but I feel like together, essentialism and effortless are stronger together. Uh, and I, I, I do think that it's really about, I mean, if you had to summarize in one word, essentialism is prioritization and effortless in one word is simplification. Uh, another way of thinking them is, is that essentialism is about figuring out what the right thing is. And the effortless is about doing figuring out the right way to do it. And it really, really matters. Uh, I think doing the right thing is gets more emphasis in society or like, you know, what, what is the goal? But how you go about it, it affects everything about what outcomes you achieve. If I say, okay, uh, having a, having, raising a family is essential to me and I go about it in the wrong way, then I will, I mean, I could, I could do all sorts of things to manipulate the appearance of success, but actually just be destroying relationships and destroying people in the process. I mean, you could do all sorts of things the wrong way that, that, uh, that might get you the short-term, sort of short-term win or appearance of, through control, uh, but you would never get effortless results this, this way. It only works when you're there asserting your dominance, making it happen a certain way. Like that, that, that's not at all the same thing. You're creating all sorts of unintended results through that approach. The way we do things is absolutely as important as what we're trying to do. Uh, on the other hand, let's stay with the, the parenting example. Um, if you do it the right way, and I've, I've done it, I've, I've had it wrong plenty of times. Every day I'm getting it wrong. Um, 
but if you if you keep coming back to the right way to do it, you know, you you achieve what you what you end up getting is that the results of in that relation in those relationships flow to you without compulsory means, like forever. Now I'm new into this, right? I we are, I only have four children, and you know they're not none of them married yet. I mean we're we're, we're in the experiment, uh, but the oldest is 18, the youngest is is, is tw- uh, 12. But I will say that even already, I'm absolutely amazed at the effect of trying to parent a certain way. I mean, particularly my wife Anna brought brought such good wisdom to how how we approached it what we might call a sort of less but better parenting. Uh, and, and yeah, every, all these things we've talked about t- today. And so I watched them in their teenage years, whereas in what I've observed is that, is that in some family cultures, by the time they're teenagers, the whole thing blows up uh, and everything's hard. And, and, and yeah, I shouldn't probably use this example because it's, it's a bit presumptuous, but it's just like... Um, but it's just like amazing how it, the results already flow in. I mean, I, I'll give you one example that's on top of my mind with this is, uh, is when, when Effortless came out and became a New York Times bestseller, which is a big deal. Uh, I, I, was, I was like literally on the phone to my editor as and the children, all of them run around and somebody's like starts filming. I don't know who was filming, but, and they just, we, there's just a celebration in them. They're all teenagers. They could be like, who cares? You know, they could be like, uh, or they could be, or the culture could be such that you're just competitive about it, or feel bad about it, or just be grudging about it. Or they're the celebration that was in them and the feeling was so positive and so good. And it's like, this is just flowing. It's flowing. And it gives me a little glimpse of how good it can be if you keep investing in the right way, results start to flow. And and I and I have a, I have some friends, um, um, who who well it's Stephen Covey's children. Some of them I became friends with him. Yep. And they the way they talk about him, he passed away in 2012. It was almost 10 years ago now, and they talk about him almost presently when they talk about him. Hmm. I, I'm sure I'm sure I just feel dead very proud of what I'm doing with this thing or that project. I can feel he's part of it. It's amazing, is that the influence has continued on. He's not even here, uh, and, and that's kind of a deeper view. Look into what I'm, what I've, I'm advocating and discovering myself and wanting to learn is this results that flow to you without your compulsory work forcing it to happen. So, what is the root of that for you, Greg? Is what is the root of? Um intentionally curating your actions, right? Intentionally curating your, uh, your end result ultimately. So is the root of it um, some preordained process from some book that says you need to be doing it this way? Or is it just, hey, I'm going to be present in love or I'm going to accept? You know, this is a kind of a parenting specific question, but I think it applies contextually into other stuff. So what, what is your, the, the root of your thought process, right? So about why to do it that way? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, my, my worldview, um, includes that families can be forever, right? Like, so it's an eternal paradigm. Yeah. It's not just birth or death. And it's not just as I think is 
maybe more traditional in in religious sentiment across you know beyond even Christianity that that in life after this we were sort of either either lose our personalities and become part of one great whole or uh, or we're individuals but no longer in families like that isn't that isn't the big eternal perspective that uh, that I've been taught from when I was young and believe and teach, you know, teach my children now is that we get to be together as families. We, we're going to be, I'm always going to be, you know, I'm always going to be Anna's husband. She's always going to be my wife. I'm, we're going to have our children, our children. We're, we're going to be part of this, that sociality that exists here will exist there. And so what that does is it is game changing paradigm. There's no question at all in my mind that that shifts the importance of every action because you, you're not making a decision just for this moment to get a result in this moment. You're saying, how can I use my effort in this moment to produce a result that could last for like forever? Yeah, it's an investment in the future, right? It's compounding interest. It's compounding interest, exactly. And it's, um, and you talk about return on effort it's a completely different thing. And so, so th- this, that perspective for me affects both uh, what's essential as an essentialism, because what lasts the longest is what matters most. You know, the longer something lasts, the more important it becomes. So it might not seem important today, but over a long period of time, you go, oh, well, that's obviously important because it lasts so long. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons that rela- family relationships tend to be underinvested in is because in the moment they don't necessarily seem hugely important because whether we're kind today or not doesn't normally end those relationships. We don't get divorced because today we were unkind. We didn't invest in the relationship. It takes time for those results to, to, to be manifest. Uh, and so compared to like doing a task for a manager, because if you don't do it, then you're going to hear from them, get an email or from a client, well, where is it? And they're going to follow up. Like there's those, you're going to instant feedback and reactions to that behavior. So it tends to, reinforce for us that that must be important because it's, it's urgent and pressure. And if you, if you have a much longer perspective, then you see more clearly importance and, and, and we can, we can pressure test that by saying, okay, well, at, when people are at the end of their lives and get to review their life, what do they see as important from a longer term perspective? And, uh, and there, you know, there is some data, quite a lot of data actually, because, <laughs> because a lot of people have died and a lot of people talk to be to people before they did die. And so you actually gather this data. Ronnie Ware was one of them that did this a nurse who was helping people in their, you know, in their hospice care. And she gathered the data. She said, well, what are the five regrets of the dying? And one of them is one of the top two is that, we invested in work instead of family. Okay, so that's a, that's a type, a very particular known error of judgment. Uh, if you, the longer something lasts, the more important it is. In, in, in family lasts, I mean, even if you don't subscribe to my worldview that it's an eternal relationship, uh, it's still the by far the longest running relationship that that is known on in humanity, right? Like of all human systems, family is by far the longest lasting, by far. Um, countries are quite fragile. Countries come and go. Um, cities are far more resilient than countries. You know, London's been around a lot longer. 
Athens has been around a lot longer. Like, the, the, you know, Rome's been around a lot longer than the countries around them. But cities are also fragile. I mean, sorry, talking about fragility, right? Organizations, the things that, the organizations that we work with that say, uh, you know, they send those emails to us that we think are really important. I mean, those organizations are incredibly fragile. Almost all of them will be gone and within a very short period of time. So they, you know, they're more fragile than countries, which are more fragile than cities. But cities are also far more fragile than intergenerational family. Intergenerational family is so resilient, it's incredible. It's, it's almost unthinkable. Uh, you know, if you, if you start getting into this, this mindset for a while, uh, it, will, it, it, will, it will shake you to think of what your own ancestors have achieved and survived for you to even, for you and I to have this conversation. It is, it is breathtaking. They, they've, they've lived through, you, you and I, our families probably were in the Second World War, could easily have been in the First World War. Uh, they, they endured not just this pandemic, but uh, the, the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, they, they lived, they, they survived somehow through, uh, you know, through, through the dark ages. It's unbelievable that, that, that humanity survived at all. And yet your family and my family survived all of that to exist, to be here. So just this sort of, even any, even if you don't see the eternal stuff, even if you just say on this side, like it's incredibly important. And so my role in making sure that I invest in, in these relationships and pass them on intact, healthier if possible than like, hopefully my family is healthier than my family of origin and passing that on and, and, and teaching this perspective so that they teach it to their children and so that you aren't the weak link in the chain, that you invest and strengthen it and think about this long-term perspective. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it shapes where you invest your time if you take a long-term perspective because it shapes what you think is important. Um, I, I, one of the projects I've, uh, I am investing in is to develop a family bank. And my goal is to create, I will start, start very conservatively, but my goal is to create um, a bank that lasts for a thousand years, a family bank that lasts for a thousand years. Um, and there's a variety of ways you can do that. Uh, but you're just, you're just making small investments now with a very long-term perspective so you can impact intergenerationally after you. They won't remember me. They won't remember even if anyone started the bank. They won't care if it's there and it operates a certain way. It can still have an impact long after you know, I'm gone and completely forgotten. Since we're on the topic of parenting, Greg, I'd love to have you talk about how you determine what's essential for you as a parent. So, you know, we've, we talked about uh, effortless and we didn't talk too much about, you know, giving some some context or some constructs and how people can start to determine what is most essential in any specific area. But since we're on parenting, I'd love to hear how you sift through the noise and determine what's going to have the greatest impact on your relationships and the outcomes that you hope to achieve. Um, Anna and I, my wife and I had as an intent very early on, not even, I don't mean just when we became parents, but just even before that, the most essential thing, the most important thing, you know, in our lives and therefore as parents was to help, was to help our children to be able to discern, you know, sort of hear 
discern and follow their own voice of conscience. And that, and then not only was that the most important thing, but that's, that's like basically the function of parenting. Like once that job is done, you have now outsourced the primary work of parenting to the next generation. And you can then, the advantage of being able to do that, of course, is that one, they're independent of you. Uh, so they're not, they're not dependent, which has weaknesses to it for them and for you. But also because then you can move into another role and you say, okay, well, well, that's been transferred. Now, how can I change my role? I don't have to be primary parent, but I could be coach to my grandchildren. I can be, I can think and design because I'm not spending all of my time trying to make decisions for my children. They're, they're the ones doing it by something, listening to something smarter and better and, and more intuitive and, than, than, than me. So that's good. They're, they're now synced up to a better source. Uh, and, and I can then play another role. I can start saying, okay, well, how can I think about, you know, the thousand year bank? How can I think about how, how can I think about future generations? Cause I'm not so consumed with this moment. Um, so, so I think that once you say that's the primary focus, you construct routines and culture to support it. For us, that looks like, I mean, things like, you know, daily personal prayer, uh, family prayer. We're still doing that. Like we, and I know we're not alone in doing it, but sometimes I feel like we're sort of this odd relic from the 1950s or something. I mean, we, we bless the food and we pray together in the morning. We pray family prayer at night and we do family council in the morning where we, 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 we do, a, you know, read scriptures together and talk about it. And I mean, we don't miss a day doing that now. And it's not because we do them so well. It's so great. It's just that we just said, look, it's so essential. We're going to build this routine and, and we're just going to make it we're just going to say, we don't even have to do it very well, but we're just not going to not do it. You know, we're just going to do it. Good days, bad days, it doesn't matter. If, even if the worst comes to worst and it's literally 30 seconds at the end of the day, we'll still do it because we're not going to miss. We just don't want to ever miss. And, and so what that's produced over, over now years of doing that is that, you know, the hardest thing about it I mean, getting them up can sometimes be hard, depending as they become teenagers, it can be a little harder. Um, although it's rare for them not to get up or, or, or we, you know, they're pretty good about it. But what, what our biggest challenge once everybody's there is getting people to stop talking about what we're talking about. Everyone's, everyone's participating, everyone's talking, everyone's doing this. And, and again, I, I, maybe I shouldn't share these things because I, I do know and feel it that, as that that is not typical experience. And so I don't, we have bad moments too. We have plenty right. of bad moments and I, I, I lose it often, you know, more often than I wish anyway. And, but, but that focus has meant that even when we feel overwhelmed with other things, we go, well, those things are essential. We're yeah. going to do those things because the because comes full circle back to the original intent because those are the things, those are the practices that will produce the environment that enable each of our children to receive personal insight, revelation, to be able to lead their own lives. And that doesn't happen in a single moment. Of course it doesn't. It, it, it's in a nurturing, ongoing process. But here they are now as teenagers and they can give and do give counsel to me 
on all sorts of questions. And their, their wisdom can be for real and independent from mine. And it's like you, you're helping and you're pouring it in and you're helping them read and you're helping them do all sorts of things to develop that, to educate their conscience and to, to, to discern it and to be able to follow it and to take initiative around the things they feel guided to do. Like you're trying to develop all of that, but then it's like it starts to get, there's a tipping point point. it starts coming back out of them. It's pretty amazing, uh, you know, pretty amazing to watch what they say and how clear they think. And I, I, I mean, they're, they're far more developed in those abilities. And I would say probably just about every ability than I was at their age. Uh, that's, that's, it's not hard for me to admit that. It's a marvelous problem. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think you should ever think like it, you shouldn't share that. I mean, hiding your light is certainly not going to help people to uh, see what the ideal might be, right? So my brain goes yeah. with respect to what you're, you're teaching them is, you know, with the scriptures, whether you choose to believe or not, is there's, there's a brilliant moral compass built into all of those stories, right? Whether or not you believe them to be true, there's still myth and there's still moral and there's still like the, the, the rationale of being a good human that's kind of built into all of it. And if you study those on a consistent basis and it elicits thought in, the, in your children, you're putting them exponentially ahead of everyone else who's stuck playing video games 12 hours a day, right? So that in and of itself is massive. On top of the fact you're doing it as a person, you're showing them how to commit to something because they've never missed a day in you know their lives. Like all these things are, are just great um, characteristics that you're building into your family. And I think that in and of itself, if that one single practice does all of those things, that to me is essential, just like you say, right? It, it's got all these downstream effects and immediate effects. Uh, and I think stuff like that, if, if, if more people thought about what you're doing and created a thought process in any way similar to what you're doing, the world would be a better place. So thank you, Greg. I don't think you should ever hide what you're doing for fear of judgment or making mm. people feel like they're not doing a great job. I think there's there's so much intentionality behind what you're doing. Um, I think it's it's a gift. And I, I know, like I said, I don't want to assume everyone believes in the same things you do um, religiously because it doesn't matter ultimately, but believing in something and, and um, reading stories with a high moral standard makes the whole world a better place, I believe. Yeah, I agree with you. And in just reading out of, you know, what we could call sort of out of the best books uh, is something that, again, is, is, is broadly applicable. I, I won't brag after this, I'll, I, even though you just told me it's okay to. I, but I was impressed by this moment. My eldest, when she was applying to uh, she's, uh, University of Choice with BYU, Brigham Young University, and, and she was just like, that was like, the only school, the only place she applied where she wanted to go. But as she was applying, I said, well, you know, one of the things you might want to do is just, I know you've read a lot, like just write down everything you've read as a you know, teenager on uh, and just gather, you know, just gather this. And she stopped, she stopped the list after she hit 200. Wow. And there's just so much more than I'd read at that age. And it's just full of these, <laughs> it's this funny thing, actually. Someone once said to me that no one likes a book pusher. And, uh, and all of my children are now book pushes to me. Um, and that's the same sense of it. Like you're pouring it into them and you're creating environment and enabling that. But now they're like, dad, have you read that book yet? You know, I really want you to read that. I want to talk about it with you. We go to do it. And it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing because, because they, that's an evidence of becoming independent. It's an evidence of, this minds are full. I mean, they still spend too much time on social media and too much time doing these other things. I, you know, I, I think it's still 
that stuff is still uh, cluttering and, and close to useless. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but the truth is they, that, you know, they, they do read all the time. And, and that's one of our, that's one of our other real challenges. They don't, don't go to sleep on time because I find them in the room and they're reading. And again, sort of 1950s problems. But, problem that's kind of, but that's like an interesting thing. I remember you reading years ago, it's like 1990s when I read it, it was a list of like 1990s problems versus 1950s problems. And, and I don't mean to be idyllic about the 1950s, I, but the problems as listed in the 1950s in school were chewing gum, uh, walking out of line, talking out of turn. Like this is the list. The list by the 1990s, and of course we could add some that aren't even on this list, unfortunately, now, but it's like, uh, you know, Columbine shooting, uh, you know, uh, guns, in, guns being brought into school, uh, teen pregnancy, uh, drugs, uh, and, and alcohol abuse. I mean, like, those are hugely different lists. And, and now we could add even, even some more severe even than that list and I just, it comes back again to this idea of like, which problems do you want? There is a path, I think, of where, how you invest your effort a little differently. You don't necessarily put in more effort, but you invest it a little differently. And what you're doing is you're making the future far easier. Um, and, and it's so important. I mean, if you invest in helping people to discern what is right, the right way to do it, and they can hear that themselves, then you don't need police to tell them what to do and make sure they do it because it's all internal. A powerful story Clayton Christensen once shared, he was at Harvard at the time, he's passed away now, of course, but um, he had a student from China and he said, what have you learned you know, since being at Harvard? What have you discovered? And he said, I, I, something I didn't know before coming here was the role that churches and synagogues and places of worship play in democracy. He said, I didn't understand that coming from China and looking at it from the outside, the, the, the role of that. And he said, well, what do you mean? How explain it to me what you've observed? And he said, well, if you have people going to these institutions and learning to govern themselves and choose to operate according to the law. It's like, that's the only way it can work. You can either have a, a massive super state that tries to control collective behavior, or you can have individuals gu guiding their own choices based upon conscience. Uh, and, and Clayton Christensen summarized this. He's like, he really said it really worried him because he says he sees the you know, the loss of churches and synagogues and mosques, like the, as, as being this, it could reach a tipping point because if you lose that ability, if individuals stop policing themselves, you can't hire enough police to do it. Yep. So, um, so that's a much, much harder way to go down the, down the, that is a, you know, you are going to, Really, you can't do it. It's so expensive, it's, it's impossible. You create a situation that's impossible. If people don't police themselves, it's actually kind of over for democracy. <laughs> like it's based on that idea, is that right. no one should be bossing you. You need to boss you. Right. Um, yeah. 
Craig, that's beautiful. I think it's a great place to end it. And we've taken a lot of your time and I'm super grateful for all your wisdom. Uh, where would you like to send people to pick up your books or learn more about you? Um, I mean, I, I love the idea of people going and subscribing to the What's Essential podcast. I mean, I keep mentioning that and I, I feel like I've overdone it actually, but uh, but it's just kind of come up naturally in our conversation. But but that's been a, that's been so fun. I just started that about a year ago. It's, it seems like it's, it's I mean, I'm in it for the long run. Um, but it did just hit sort of top five in its category. And, uh, and that's, you know, I have 66,000 podcasts in, in educational category and iTunes. So it's like, that was our big first <laughs> big piece of news. That's great. Um, so we're very happy about that. And, and it's just been a great, I've just loved it doing it. And so it's, that's been a great chance to continue the conversation. That'd be, that'd be one place. If a second place, go to essentialism.com where there's lots of good stuff happening, a new academy that's being rolled out right now. Uh, and if people do buy Effortless, they can get access to, uh, to a 21-day uh, essentialism challenge for free. Um, so, yeah, anyway, those are, those are a few I things. I saw that. Thank you so much. We'll link to both of those in the show, show notes. All of our guests and our listeners can get over there and pick up those books, which I highly recommend. And, Greg, thank you so much for what you do and for your time. Our listeners are definitely going to be eternally grateful, as am I. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. One of the big keys to optimal health is bouncing blood sugar. So don't forget to go over to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health and get hooked up with 10% off using the code MUSCLE10. Thank you very much, Greg McEwen, for being here and enlightening us with this incredible information. Greg, as you can hear, is an incredible man. He's an incredible dad. He's leading from the front. Ladies and gents, in all of your lives, in all of, including my life, in all of our lives, uh, leadership requires stepping out in front of the group, thinking on your own, thinking differently than everybody else, and being able to sift through the noise and ultimately get through to the high-impact thoughts, the high-impact habits that ultimately move the needle. Success in life is not hard. It simply requires clarity and execution, right? So it's knowing what to prioritize and simply doing it. I hope you guys have loved this podcast. If you did, I would appreciate a review. I would appreciate a subscription and a share. If you guys are not already watching and listening on YouTube, do that now. We are also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere where fine podcasts are downloaded and listened to. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much to our sponsor, Buy Optimizers, for always showing up with the best products for you, for me to thrive and optimize our health. I feel amazing and I hope you do too. Have a great day, guys and girls. I love you. I appreciate you. And I will see you very, very soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.